Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 102, Space Shuttle Flight 31, STS-34, The Long Road to Jupiter. Last time, we tagged along on Columbia for the secretive flight of STS-28. We maybe deployed a reconnaissance satellite, and more likely deployed a classified spinning communication satellite, and definitely carried a weird human skull on the middeck. The flight was one of several classified DoD missions that we'll be seeing in rapid succession, I imagine as the space shuttle program and the DoD tried their best to finally part ways. For today's mission, instead of secret classified details, it's about as public as it gets, another flagship interplanetary mission. Today, we'll be talking about the Galileo mission, the first spacecraft dedicated to studying Jupiter up close. So who is Galileo, and why does he get a mission named after him? Galileo Galilei was born on February 15, 1564, in Pisa, in the Duchy of Florence. He graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy and was selected as an astronaut in... Wait, 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 sorry, old habits. No, really, Galileo was a scientist, and a pretty darn good one. Just one example of his many achievements is he proved that objects fall at the same rate, regardless of their mass. That is, heavier objects don't fall faster, which is what everybody thought for thousands of years. But the accomplishment that got his name painted onto the side of an interplanetary spacecraft was building one of the first ever telescopes, pointing it at Jupiter, and recording what he saw. What he saw, right before his eyes, night after night, were several points of light traveling back and forth in a line across Jupiter. After a few nights, he realized what he was seeing. Moons. The discovery that Jupiter had its own moons orbiting around it supported the heliocentric model of the solar system and caused a big upset that we're not going to get into here. Much like its namesake, the Galileo spacecraft would also be getting a closer look at Jupiter. Galileo would not be the first spacecraft to visit Jupiter. Pioneer 10 and 11 and Voyager 1 and 2 blasted through the system in the 1970s, only quickly glancing around before continuing on in their trek through the solar system. What made Galileo special was that it would be staying at Jupiter, entering into orbit and studying the solar system's largest planet for years, not hours. This was all part of the plan. Pioneer and Voyager essentially scouted the road ahead, while dedicated missions would follow in their footsteps. Galileo was one such dedicated mission. With the spacecraft orbiting Jupiter instead of just flying by, far more time would be available to study the planet, its moons, and the local environment in detail. Just a few of the questions that scientists wanted answers to was, why is it so radioactive around Jupiter? What's up with Io's volcanoes? Why is Jupiter emitting radio waves? And many, many others. Instead of skimming the back of the book, Galileo was going to read it from cover to cover. Early work on Galileo started in 1972, and it really got going in earnest in 1974. At the time it was first being formulated, the expectation was that Galileo would fly on a dedicated, expendable launch vehicle similar to its predecessors. But as we know, the spaceflight landscape changed significantly in the early 1970s, with work beginning on the space shuttle. With NASA going all-in on the shuttle, requiring that all payloads be deployed from the orbiter, Galileo mission designers suddenly found themselves having to adapt the plan to fit through a space shuttle-sized hole. On its own, this wasn't necessarily a big deal. Compromises and changes happen all the time with space missions. 
But, well, let's just say that it's unlikely that there were many fans of the space shuttle on the Galileo team by the time the probe finally flew. First, there were the initial space shuttle delays. As you'll recall, Columbia was first supposed to fly in 1979, but ran into a number of issues, most notably with the thermal protection system. Right off the bat, the first launch was pushed two years down the road. Not great, but fine. Galileo's launch was changed to 1982. Except, no. With the shuttle working through its backlog slower than expected, Galileo was soon pushed again to 1985. That's a noteworthy milestone, since if the original plan to use an expendable booster had held, that's the year that Galileo would have arrived at Jupiter. By this point, the spacecraft had already been through a number of iterations, switching from Shuttle Centaur as an upper stage, to the inertial upper stage, and back to Shuttle Centaur, and with each change and delay requiring a full rework of the trajectory. When the launch was once again delayed, the options for replanning were getting more and more limited. The spacecraft itself had been constructed from 1982 to 1985, and near the end of 1985 was even delivered to the Kennedy Space Center, carefully packed on top of a flatbed truck. Unfortunately, it was delivered near the end of 1985 because the launch had been rescheduled to May of 1986. The loss of Space Shuttle Challenger in January 1986 impacted Galileo in several ways. First, the May launch window was clearly going to be missed. Second, Galileo had to be trucked back across the country to JPL for long-term storage. You can't just leave a spacecraft sitting around in a warehouse. They need special care and feeding. So it was decided that returning it to where it had been built was the best option. Third, the accident meant that once again the upper stage had to be changed out. Shuttle Centaur was off the table. So it was back to the inertial upper stage. That came with its own set of problems which we'll discuss once we get on orbit, but first let's meet the crew. Commanding the flight was Don Williams, who we know from his role as pilot on STS-51D. Thanks to a busted startup switch on SYNCOM 4-3, he got to practice a surprise bonus rendezvous, but the crew's improvised fly-swatter device was unable to fix their deployed payload. Here's hoping that this mission sees better luck, because this is his second of two flights. Serving as pilot was Michael McCulley. Michael McCulley was born on August 4, 1943 in San Diego, California, but considers himself to be a Tennessee native. Rather than heading off to college right after high school, he seems to have gotten lost on his way to space and joined the Navy, serving aboard three different submarines. Space is in the other direction, Mike. After he resurfaced, he attended Purdue University, picking up bachelor's and master's degrees in metallurgical engineering. After Purdue, he learned how to fly, serving as a test pilot in a variety of roles. NASA picked him up in 1984, and though he retired from NASA in 1990, making this his one and only spaceflight, he stayed in the spaceflight world for quite a bit longer, first working for Lockheed Martin at the Kennedy Space Center, and eventually becoming the CEO of United Space Alliance. Our first mission specialist is someone we're already familiar with, Shannon Lucid. Lucid last flew on STS-51G, helping punch out a couple of commsats. This is her second of five flights. Sitting next to Lucid was another future frequent flyer, Franklin Chang Diaz. 
We last saw him flying on STS-61C, deploying commsats, performing some mid-deck experiments, and probably cursing the batteries on the CHAMP experiment. This is his second of seven flights. And last but not least was Mission Specialist 3, Ellen Baker. Ellen Baker was born on April 27, 1953 in Fayetteville, North Carolina, but she presumably has strong opinions about bagels, subways, and baseball teams because she considers her hometown to be New York City. She earned a bachelor's in geology from the State University of New York at Buffalo, and then an MD from Cornell a few years later. She had been at NASA for a few years before becoming an astronaut, joining the Johnson Space Center as a medical officer in 1981. She became an astronaut in 1984, and while her third and final flight was in 1995, she'll be with us for the remainder of the shuttle program, finally retiring in 2011. As the Kennedy Space Center rolled into October of 1989, anticipation must have been in the air. After many years of waiting, Galileo's turn in the launch queue had finally come up. The spacecraft itself had been trucked back to the Kennedy Space Center some months earlier, these truck convoys are supposed to be secret, just in case someone decided to mess with the priceless spacecraft, but STS-34 pilot McCulley must have figured out when the trucks were coming through, because as they drove through Texas, he buzzed the convoy in his T-38. I'm sure the drivers loved that. Yes, Galileo's time to shine was here, but shining was exactly what a lot of people were worried about. In fact, they were so worried about it, that there were protests at the Kennedy Space Center, held by members of the general public who were opposed to the launch. What could members of the general public possibly have against a Jupiter orbiter? They weren't big fans of the space shuttle's power source, a couple of RTGs. RTGs, which stand for radioisotope thermoelectric generators, are something familiar to us thanks to the Apollo missions. They are devices that take advantage of the radioactive decay of certain elements, in this case plutonium, in order to generate electricity. Rather than something as complex as a nuclear reactor, RTGs just sip a little bit of energy off of the mild heat made by these reactions. It's essentially a fancy tube full of warm rocks. They're super useful when you need electrical power in a place where solar panels aren't going to work so great. Since Jupiter is much further away from the Sun than the Earth, and also has a large number of high-energy charged particles whizzing around, solar panels were less than ideal. It's not impossible to use solar panels at Jupiter, as evidenced by the Juno spacecraft orbiting it now, but it adds a lot of mass and complexity while shortening the possible length of the mission. The concern of the protesters was that if there was another shuttle accident, radioactive particles could blanket the Florida landscape, creating an environmental catastrophe. It was a fair concern, but the people who made the RTGs were just as concerned. With the potential for catastrophe in mind, they had put test RTGs through all sorts of crazy testing to show that they would not break open. In fact, they were so tough that despite returning from lunar velocities and crashing into the ocean, it seemed that the RTG that was supposed to be left on the surface on Apollo 13 had actually held together. So yeah, pretty tough. As STS-34 pilot McCulley put it, the only way an RTG can hurt you is if you drop it on your foot. The first launch attempt was set for October 12th, but was scrubbed when a controller for one of the main engines started acting up. 
These were big boxy computers that sat near the engines, so it took five days to replace the controller. I'm sure that that was five days where the Galileo folks were anxiously eyeing the launch opportunity calendar. On October 17th, it was time to try again, this time with the crew actually boarding the spacecraft. Unfortunately, the weather refused to cooperate, both at the runway, needed for RTLS aborts, and the alternate landing sites, needed for transoceanic abort landings. So once again, STS-34 was forced to scrub. Actually, it may have been fortunate weather after all. Later that day, on the 17th, right around the time that Galileo would have been deployed, a large earthquake struck California, including the Sunnyvale-based command center where the Air Force controlled the IUS. While major damage to the command center was avoided, it had to be evacuated while ceiling tiles fell to the ground. That would not have been great for Galileo. In a true sign of professionalism and dedication to the mission, specifically mentioned by the shuttle crew, those flight controllers reported for work the next day, despite the fact that some of them had lost their homes in the earthquake. Galileo was that important. The next day, October 18th, 1989, the crew suited up to try again. In a nod to the season, a jack-o'-lantern was on the table as the crew enjoyed their breakfast. The weather was still a little touch-and-go, leading to a 3-minute and 40-second hold, but finally, at 12.53 and 40 seconds Eastern Time, Atlantis lifted off, and both STS-34 and the Galileo mission were underway. The ascent was mostly nominal, with the most severe issues being an APU flipping itself to high-speed mode despite not being told to, and the flash evaporator system acting up again. The flash evaporator system cools the spacecraft while the radiators, mounted inside the payload bay doors, were still stowed, so they were important during the moments after launch and orbital insertion. Speculation was that minor cooling changes made to accommodate the always-on and always-hot RTG inside Galileo may have caused ice to form in the exhaust duct. Something to be aware of, but no big deal. And to handle the APU issue, the crew just avoided using it for the rest of the mission, only turning it on briefly near the end of the flight. After five trips around the world, it was finally, finally time to deploy Galileo. The deploy would be handled by Shannon Lucid, who knew the procedures inside and out. Since the upper stage was an IUS, this was pretty well-worn territory, and the deploy went by the books. Just a few minutes after passing by Hawaii, Commander Williams called down, Deploy on time, Houston. The spacecraft is stable. Galileo is on its way to another world. It's in the hands of the best flight controllers in the world. Fly safe. And with that, the crew of STS-34 became the last humans to set eyes on Galileo as it began its journey to Venus. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> yep, that's not a mistake. Galileo was on its way to Venus. Allow me to explain. We're going to tag along with Galileo for a bit, but don't worry. I promise I won't forget about poor Atlantis this time. When the sporty shuttle Centaur upper stage had to be swapped out for the significantly less powerful IUS, the Galileo team had to get creative and find an alternate road to Jupiter. What they came up with was VEGA, the Venus Earth Earth Gravity Assist. Since Galileo didn't have enough energy to go straight to Jupiter, it would be taking the long road. By carefully passing first Venus, then Earth, and then Earth again, the spacecraft would steal a minuscule amount of energy away from the orbiting planets and boost its own orbit. 
Basically, the planet slowed down by a vanishingly small amount, and the spacecraft got faster. I kind of think of it like that thing Marty McFly would do in Back to the Future, where he'd ride on a skateboard and grab the back of a car, but imagine gliding from car to car. That analogy isn't the most accurate, but it's in the right ballpark. Oh, and did I mention that the ride to Jupiter was going to take six years now? Because yeah, flying between all these planets and winding up for the big push to the outer solar system was going to take a while. This trajectory led to further compromises on the spacecraft. Since Galileo had been designed to fly to Jupiter, it couldn't handle the thermal environment around Venus without modification. Small sun shields were added around critical components, protecting them from the sun's more intense-than-planned-for heat. One of these components was the high-gain antenna. Engineers were concerned that the added heat might cause the main dish to deform, so to protect it, it remained stowed tightly behind the sun shield. Its launch locks were disengaged, but it wasn't commanded to open until sometime after it returned to Earth for the first time, over a year after launch. That day arrived on April 11th, 1991, and dear listeners, it was not a good day. The high-gain antenna would not open. Imagine an umbrella where only one side popped only partway open. That's the situation with the high-gain antenna. They tried everything they could think of. They tried repeatedly sending the open command to hammer the mechanism, cold-soaking components to try to take advantage of thermal shrinkage, Spinning the spacecraft? Everything. It just would not open. We'll never know for sure what the problem was, but the best guess is that the long wait in storage after the Challenger accident caused the antenna lubricant to degrade. Combine that with two more cross-country truck rides than expected, and something somewhere just got stuck. This was very bad. Instead of receiving data from our first Jovian ambassador at 134,000 bits per second, the ground team was forced to use the backup low-gain antenna at a paltry 10 bits per second. 134,000 to 10. At that rate, you'd be able to download an average-sized episode of The Space Above Us in 110 days. It's a good thing that there was such a long road to Jupiter left ahead of them, as it gave the ground team time to come up with some creative solutions. Upgrades to the deep space network increased its ability to pick up weak signals. The signal itself from Galileo was restructured, and new compression algorithms were written and applied to everything. Eventually, they were able to get the bitrate up to 160 bits per second, which was roughly equivalent to around 1000 bits per second after decompression. So, just to stick with the same example, that average episode of the podcast would now only take 26 and a half hours to download. And that's still pretty far off of the 12 minutes or so that it should have taken, but it really is quite an improvement. As much as I would love to go over the entire Galileo mission, we just don't have the time. So let's quickly hit on a few milestones. Galileo was the first spacecraft to observe an asteroid up close even finding an asteroid with its own little moon. It made observations of the far side and the north pole of the moon during its Earth flybys, supplementing Apollo observations. It deployed an atmospheric probe into Jupiter, which came screaming into the clouds of the planet at over 100,000 miles per hour, decelerating at over 200 Gs. It observed the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9's impact with Jupiter. 
and it survived all the way to 2004 before finally being intentionally deorbited in the skies of Jupiter. Galileo was an incredible mission, and one that I'm eager to learn more about in my spare time. Its discoveries wrote the book on Jupiter. And to help give a sense of just how long its mission took to play out, I'm planning on checking in every now and then as its major milestones line up with various shuttle missions. So it's so long for now, Galileo. We'll check back in when you swing by Venus. Alright, I believe we had the rest of a shuttle mission to discuss. Unlike on STS-30, this time around Atlantis still had a fair amount of extra performance left for secondary payloads, so we've still got a few busy and active days ahead of us. Let's learn a bit about what kept the crew at work. First was a mid-deck experiment furnished by 3M, the giant Minnesota-based company perhaps best known for inventing the post-it sticky note. Perhaps with better post-its in mind, the 3M experiment would be studying the polymerization process. Polymers are materials that are basically made of long strands of material down at the molecular level. The arrangement of these long strands help to determine how the material will behave. Will it be squishy and stretchy? Hard and brittle? Sticky or slippery? And you get the idea. By heating up and cooling down various materials in a controlled fashion in the microgravity environment, 3M hoped to better understand how this process worked. Mission specialists Chang, Diaz, and Lucid operated the 200-pound experiment over a few days. One notable thing about this experiment was that it came with a laptop computer. This might not seem like a big deal, but remember, this is 1989. A general-purpose laptop with a general-purpose display opened a lot of possibilities. For example, without the laptop, it's likely that it would not have been worth the effort of creating and validating the extra hardware necessary to display to the crew exactly what was happening in the experiment. But with the laptop, it's just a simple plot on the screen. It also performed analyses on the materials on the fly, literally, allowing the crew to change their approach depending on the outcomes rather than just taking what they could get and leaving it to analysts on the ground to look at later. So, while I don't know if this polymerization experiment really went anywhere, the use of portable, general-purpose computers on the shuttle was definitely a concept that was here to stay. Two experiments that we're pretty familiar with at this point also made a return, the mesoscale lightning experiment and the Maui optical site calibration tests. Again, the mesoscale lightning experiment was one that took advantage of the astronaut's lofty perch to measure and photograph thunderstorms from above, helping scientists better understand their behavior. And the Maui optical site calibration tests were just the shuttle crew letting the Air Force know what they were doing while they were being observed. That way, the Air Force could connect the dots between what they were seeing with their instruments and what the shuttle crew told them, better allowing them to observe other spacecraft. It wouldn't be a shuttle flight without a few experiments on the crew themselves. Just one example, the circumference of Franklin Chang Diaz's thighs were measured before, during, and after the flight to better understand how fluid shifts around while in microgravity. While on orbit, when measured from just above the knee, his thigh lost two full inches of circumference as fluids shifted to other parts of his body. Sounds like a lot to me. And lastly, Galileo was not the only thing riding along in the payload bay. The Shuttle Solar Backscatter Ultraviolet Experiment, or SSBUV, was bolted to the starboard side of the payload bay, taking up two getaway special canisters. This experiment would measure the ultraviolet output of the sun, 
and then check the ultraviolet light being reflected off of the Earth. By doing this very carefully, scientists were able to learn about the ozone layer of the atmosphere. Ozone, which is a molecule made of three oxygen atoms instead of the usual two, plays a critical role in preventing harmful ultraviolet radiation from reaching the ground. The ozone layer had been disrupted by years of pollution, especially from chlorofluorocarbons, so scientists wanted to make sure that they had a good understanding of how it was being affected. With this in mind, there were already instruments on several Earth-observing spacecraft that were taking similar measurements. Here's the problem, though. How do you know they're right? Ozone measurements take a fair amount of precision, and while those instruments would have been tested in the lab, there could be no way to tell if they were slightly changed during the ride to space or during their many years on orbit. Is the ozone layer changing, or is it the instrument? This is where SSBUV came in. In addition to providing useful data on its own, it would also serve as a calibration point for other spacecraft. Because SSBUV could be tested before and after flying, and even fly several times. By comparing its data to data taken by other space-based instruments at the same time, it was possible to dial in those other instruments and make sure that they are providing reliable measurements. It was a nice little synergy between the crewed and uncrewed sides of NASA. After a few days, it was time to start getting ready to head home. Or was it? The nominal length of the flight was just over five days, but due to poor weather at the shuttle landing sites, Mission Control asked the crew to make preparations both to come home early or to come home late. So they began conserving a little more power and resources, while also making sure that everything was wrapped up with plenty of time to spare. In the end, they went with a slightly shorter mission. On flight day 4, the mission was cut short by one revolution, and one more on flight day 5. So that's how it was that after 4 days, 23 hours, 39 minutes, and 20 seconds, Atlantis touched down once again at Edwards Air Force Base. Another interplanetary probe was on its way, our understanding of our own atmosphere had improved, and we even got some new IMAX footage from space. All around, it was a pretty solid little flight. And though it may have been a long and torturous journey to get to this point, and there were plenty of hardships yet to come, Galileo was finally ready to make history. Next time, we'll let Galileo do its thing and turn our attention back to Earth, specifically Launch Complex 39B at the Kennedy Space Center. There we'll find Space Shuttle Discovery getting ready to launch on a mission that will... Wait, another Department of Defense mission? <sighs> well... At least this time, the number of crew members and the number of human skulls on board lines up. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. 